The word of God where it says, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg, I beg you that when I come, I, might, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are only looking on the surface of things. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for the building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realise that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did not get as far with you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in another man's territory, but let him who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may, not be tra- I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. 
Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. This cup. Well, I've uh, got some trivia. Everyone loves a little bit of trivia. So, uh, so see how you go with these questions. If you know the answer, just call out. So here we go. True or false? Madrid is the capital of Spain. I didn't know that. I had to Google it. Anyway, but that's true. True or false? Thomas Jefferson was the first president of the United States. Oh, wow, that's good. Wow, I didn't know that one either. Uh, okay, true or false? It was Albert Einstein who said, God does not play dice with the universe. True. Well, everybody loves uh, a bit of trivia, don't they? It's always fun, except when uh, you, ju- you justly win a trivia competition and then someone steals the results from you. But uh, <laughs> let's, not, let's not relive that. But um, those wounds strike deeply. But uh, we, we all love a bit of trivia. And even if you don't know the answer to some of these questions, nowadays you can just Google it, you know, first president of the United States, and uh, you can find out the answer pretty quickly. But what do you do when the situation, when the question is a bit trickier? Uh, in the passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul is talking about things that are true and false as well. He's talking about true and false apostles. But you can't Google that, can you? You can't sort of just type it into Google and say, true or false teacher. So what do you do? How do you know when something is right, when something is wrong? And in this passage, God is helping us to think through uh, some of those realities. I'm going to do something uh, controversial this morning, and that is to start at the end of the passage and kind of uh, work from there. Because the reason I'm doing that is because I don't think it's until you get to the end of this passage that you really get a grasp of what Paul is trying to do. In the last few verses, in, uh, in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 11, he says, Paul says, and I will keep on doing what I am doing, that is what he's been doing so far in this chapter, I'll keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity 
to be, to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. So the whole point of what Paul has been saying over these last two chapters is that these uh, other teachers who've come into the Corinthian church are not legitimate teachers. They've infiltrated the church to teach other things. He says earlier in chapter 11, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I've promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you to him as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So these people were coming into the Corinthian church and they are leading the, the church away from this a, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. They were preaching, Paul says, another Christ, a different spirit and a different gospel. So they were not, please notice, they were not not preaching Christ, if that makes sense. It wasn't that they came in and said, uh, we should be following Zeus. Let's, uh, let's all pack up and go down to the Zeus temple at the end of the road and go and worship God there. They weren't saying that. They were still talking about Jesus. They were still talking about the spirits. They were still talking about the gospel. They were using Bible words, but they were using Bible words without their Bible meaning. So it might be the human Jesus of the liberal church who is not God and who didn't rise from the dead. It might be the therapeutic Jesus who wants us to be happy rather than who died to defeat the ugliness of our sin. Or it might be the rainbow Jesus who wants us to embrace our deepest inner desires and sins. These people say Jesus, but the Jesus that they're talking about is not actually the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of history, the Jesus of reality. He is a Jesus of their own imagination. Just think for a moment about the list of cults whose names include Jesus or Christian. Christian science? The Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints? Christadelphian? Tomorrow night on Four Corners is an investigation into an alleged Christian cult or sect. I don't know anything about it. But it wouldn't be surprising, would it, that someone would take the name of Christian or Jesus and preach another Jesus, a different Jesus. There's lots of fake Jesuses, but the... There's only one real Jesus, the Son of God who took on flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died a perfect death, who rose from the dead, who's seated at the right hand of God and who will come to judge the living and the dead. There's only one real Jesus, says Paul, and that's the Jesus that Paul and the apostles preached to us and to the Corinthian church. 
What's so disturbing, I think, uh, about what Paul is saying about these false apostles is how hard they are to spot. So in verse 13 he says that these people masquerade as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. In other words, Paul is saying, you don't look at these guys, they don't walk into your church, uh, you don't find them on the internet and think to yourself, that guy is a false teacher. You look at them and you go, wow, this guy is an angel of light. He's a servant of righteousness. In fact, Paul says, even if Satan came in, Satan is coming in, he looks to people like an angel of light, like he's, like he's teaching the truth. These things aren't far off uh, possibilities, but they're present realities. So here's a true example uh, of how these things play out in the life of churches. A small church, a real church, someone comes into the church uh, teaching a kind of universalism that everybody is saved whether or not they believe in Jesus. Uh, The church asks the person to stop teaching. The person doesn't stop teaching. They ask the person to leave the church. The person leaves and takes a number of families with them. The small church can't sustain the loss and in the end has to close down. These are present realities, not things that happened in the first century and we've kind of ironed out now because of our theological sophistication. They're present realities because Satan is always waging a war of misinformation and deceit. Paul says false teachers are real, they teach another Christ, and they can be very hard to spot. So that's kind of the context, if you like, of this whole, of everything else that Paul is saying in these two chapters. And everything else kind of fits within that. He's trying to, what Paul is trying to do is, in the context of these false teachers, explain why they should listen to him and not listen to these super apostles. And he essentially says three different things, gives three reasons why they should listen to him and not these other guys. So first of all, the first reason he gives is, he says that they shouldn't evaluate the truthfulness of his ministry, they shouldn't evaluate the truthfulness of Paul's ministry on the basis of his personality or gifts. So all through these two chapters you can see that the Corinthian church is kind of unhappy with Paul's persona. Yeah, he's not kind of, his abilities, his personality are not all that they'd hoped for. So 10 verse 1, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. So they think he's kind of a bit wimpy when he's there in person, but when he's writing his letters, he's kind of, this, you know, thinks of himself as a strong man. Or 10 verse 7, you're you're looking only at the surface of things. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. So here are these false teachers. He's not talking about the Corinthians. He's saying 
The Corinthians are looking on the surface. These other false teachers are saying, well, well, we belong to Christ, but Paul and his friends, they don't belong to Christ. Paul says, no, you're only looking on the surface of things. We do belong to Christ. Or 11 verse 5, but I do not think I am the least inferior to those super, super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. So these super apostles were coming in, they were saying, Paul and his friends, they're not, they're not Christians, they're not real Christians, uh, they're not gifted. Uh, and the Corinthian church was kind of gravitating towards these newcomers. They're attracted to the uh, personality and the gifts of these super apostles. And I think that danger, the danger, if you like, of the personality cult is as relevant today as it was in Paul's day. We're easily attracted to skill, I think, aren't we? And, and in a sense, that's, that's right. You know, it's, nobody wants to celebrate mediocrity, uh, and I don't think the Bible is calling us to celebrate mediocrity either. We shouldn't be indifferent to skill or ability or even personality the danger, I think, that Paul is highlighting is when those things become intoxicating. So when what's on the surface actually blinds us to what's underneath. It's not that skill and, and uh, competence are wrong, but it's when we only look at those things and we say, well, actually, I'm just looking at this layer up here and that person must be good because they have those things squared away, but actually down here they're teaching absolute garbage. So uh, let me give an example. Uh, take a guy like Rob Bell, uh, who produced the Numa videos. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're, they're pretty big. And when they came out, they came out, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, I think, when they first started coming out. Uh, when they came out, people loved Rob Bell because he's a great communicator. He is really a gifted communicator. Uh, and in these videos, they're really pomo, uh, postmodern, and uh, you know, it's kind of all the way they frame it and everything like that. Uh, and you watch these videos and go, "Wow, Rob Bell must be a great teacher because he's such a great communicator." But the more you watched, the more you found out about what he believed and what he taught. People discovered that there were some deep flaws in the kind of the gospel message that he was communicating. Not least among them. Uh, his uh, view of universalism. Again, it's that idea that everybody's saved in the end, whether or not they believe in Jesus. What Paul is saying is we shouldn't be sucked in by people like that who are great communicators just because they're great communicators. What matters foundationally is the truth that they're teaching. We might be attracted to churches or to internet preachers or to books because the people who write them are competent and gifted and winning personalities. But great skills and great personality don't always make for great gospel preaching. That's the point that Paul is making. Don't evaluate the truthfulness of ministry on the basis of personality and gifts. Second, Paul says to the Corinthians, they shouldn't evaluate his ministry on the basis of what he says about his own ministry, but on the basis of what God says and on the basis of the facts. So these super apostles 
seemed, uh, seemed to love comparing themselves to other people and showing that their ministries are better. So in 10 verse 12, Paul says, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. These other guys are commending themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. The false teachers were coming in and comparing themselves favourably to everybody else. And it almost sounds as though what they were doing was coming in and claiming credit for what Paul and uh, other people had done in their ministry. So they were kind of sheep stealers, if you like. Paul had established the Corinthian church uh, and these false teachers were coming in and going, well, you know, kind of claiming the church as their own. Look at the church that we've built up. Haven't we done a wonderful job? Aren't we wonderful ministers and teachers? Paul says, no, that's not true. It can be deceiving, I think, to look at a, a burgeoning church, you know, a church which has really taken off, and to look at that church and say, well, that's a great ministry. The people in that church must have really faithful ministries because it's a growing church. But that can be so deceptive, I think, because often the people who've gone into that church are not necessarily new Christians. They've, they've come from other people's ministries, other churches, other places. And that, I mean, that may be okay. That's not the point. The point is you can't judge a ministry based on the fact that it's a growing church uh, because that work may have been done by other people. Paul says we can't judge ministries based on what people say about their own ministry, but we have to judge it on what God says and on the basis of the facts. It takes time to work out whether those churches are genuine growing ministries. Paul's not opposed to pointing out the effects of his ministry. He says in, uh, uh, in that passage, We will, however, not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel. He's saying, our ministry is effective because it built your church. We're not claiming other people's ministry results. Our ministry has built your church. What are the signs of genuine ministry, Paul says? It's genuine gospel fruit. And as well as that, verse 18, he says, Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. The signs of genuine ministry are ministry which produces genuine gospel fruit and ministry which is commended by God. So Paul says that we shouldn't judge the truthfulness of teachers based on their personality and gifts. We shouldn't judge uh, ministries on the basis of uh, what people say about their own ministry, but on the basis of what God says and on the basis of the facts, the gospel fruit. Thirdly and lastly, Paul says that they should, the Corinthians should evaluate the legitimacy of his ministry based on its ability to demolish opposing arguments, based on its truth. 
So chapter 10, verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So what commends Paul's ministry most of all is truth. And the truth of his truth, if you like. He doesn't need to defend himself because the truth which he wields, which he teaches, is powerful truth. True truth demolishes arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Truth is powerful because it's true and because it can be seen to be true. So notice that Paul doesn't bind the anti-intellectualism of our day. He doesn't say, the litmus test of my apostleship is how you feel about it. He doesn't say, you know our message is true because you know it in your heart of hearts. He doesn't say that. That's not the measure of the truth of Paul's gospel. The measure of the truth of, God, of Paul's gospel is it demolishes arguments and every pretension which sets itself up against the knowledge of God. It's sometimes said uh, that you can't argue a person into the kingdom of heaven. And Paul says, actually, that's wrong. That's not true. Because the truth defeats arguments and lofty speculation. The Holy Spirit has many weapons at his disposal, and one of them is truth and argument and reason. We ought to expect the true gospel ministry to be powerful ministry because it's true. We ought to expect that the gospel provides us with plausible arguments which meet people's objections. So when we talk to people about the gospel, we shouldn't think to ourselves, well, they're going to find me out. They're going to find out that this is all just a kind of a, a terrible myth. Because Paul says, no, true gospel ministry defeats, demolishes, tears down everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We ought to expect that the gospel gives us a plausible explanation of the world and the way people, why people are the way they are. We ought to expect that the gospel can be plausibly integrated with life and with history and the arts and science. The legitimacy of the gospel and of gospel ministry is seen in its power to demolish opposing arguments. And that's true in our own experience, that is, as we talk to people and as we hear gospel ministry. It's also true, I think, at a kind of a global Christian level. That is, the community of faithful Christians all over the world are continually demonstrating the truth of the historic gospel message. So it's not just 
us and what we're doing here, but other Christians all over the world and what they're doing to show the truth of the gospel message. So think of someone like John Lennox, uh, the Oxford mathematician who continually debates uh, Richard Dawkins and writes books, has science buried God? John Lennox is showing that the truth of the gospel demolishes arguments and tears down everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Uh, or think of Francis Schaeffer. I don't know how many people know Francis Schaeffer, but uh, he was around in the 70s, uh, and he took on philosophy, of all things. He took on the philosophical systems of the day that were winding their way, actually, through popular culture and undermining faith. And he took on philosophy and showed that the gospel can actually defeat the philosophical systems of the day. And that wasn't just an ivory tower thing. Francis Schaeffer was actually one of the most successful apologists and evangelists of the 1970s. Or think of people like John Dixon or Tom Wright, who've worked hard to show the historical validity of the New Testament and the resurrection. I don't know how many people have heard of Bart Ehrman or Ehrman, but uh, Bart Ehrman is a heretic, actually, just for clarity, uh, who was a Christian and now writes popular books denying Christianity. And a lot of his books have been bestsellers uh, on the New York Times bestseller list. And there's lots of really smart Christians around the world writing other books showing uh, the flaws in Bart Ehrman's arguments. They're showing that the truth of the gospel demolishes uh, everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Now, we might think some of those things are boring. I don't care about history. I don't care about this guy in America that I've never heard of. But the truth is, the important point is, These people are showing that the truth of the gospel stands up to scrutiny. And also, the work that they're doing in defending the gospel is protecting us because those ideas don't filter down to us. The ideas that Francis Schaeffer was countering started off in academia and 30 years later, everyone believes them in popular culture. And actually... People still believe them today. The things that started off in philosophy departments in universities in the 1950s and the 1940s. In the middle of last century, evangelicals retreated from engagement with academic uh, writing. And the result was that the meaning of the crucifixion of Jesus and his death was undermined in churches. And that had a result which lasted for 30 or 40 years, undermining the meaning of the atonement. It wasn't until Leon Morris, an Australian academic, wrote an extremely boring book called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross that the tide started to be turned back. What's the point? The point is not... We should all go and buy Leon Morris's book, The Apostolic Preacher in the Cross. The point is this the gospel stands up to scrutiny. 
It demolishes arguments and everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And that's true not only in our own life, in our own ministry, but that's true of the whole Christian community. We need each other. To continually work and to demonstrate the truth of the gospel. It's easy for us, I think, to believe that the church in Australia has reached a new age of enlightenment where we've kind of moved beyond doctrinal squabbles and heresies and errors. But if church history teaches anything, it's that heresy and error is with us as long as we live on this side of Jesus' return. Paul reminds us in this passage that Satan has been at work from the earliest days of the church, disguised as an angel of light, sending people into churches to preach another Christ and another gospel. And it's not a matter of peripheral importance. It's not a matter of a trifling matter, Paul says, because Satan's aim is to drag us away from the heart of the gospel, to drag us away from Jesus and to drag us away from the sincere and pure devotion to him. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much for uh, Paul's ministry. Lord, thank you so much for the authenticity uh, of Paul's ministry. That his ministry is validated by the growth of the churches which he established and formed, that his ministry is validated by the truth which he proclaimed, which truth has been written down in the Bible for us, that we might receive his ministry about Jesus Christ and believe on him for salvation. Lord, we pray that you would help help us to hold fast to that truth and not to be led astray. Lord, help us to be wary of error, but to trust that you are able to guide and preserve us in the truth. Lord, we thank you for those people all over the world who are fighting with us, the good fight of the faith, fighting to preserve the truth of the gospel and to demonstrate the truth of the gospel to a doubting world. Lord, we thank you for their efforts, their efforts that we don't always see but that are invaluable in helping us to run the race set before us. Lord, we pray that uh, as we hold fast to the gospel, that you would enable us too to be faithful gospel ministers, ministers not of lies and error, but ministers of the truth. For Jesus' sake. Amen.